Friends, good morning. Let me invite you to open your copy of God's Word to Revelation chapter 14. There's uh, one underneath the chair in front of you. If you came without a Bible, I encourage you to grab one of those, or perhaps it's on the floor, and use that to follow along. This morning's passage is... Uh, it's one of the downsides of preaching sequentially through the Bible. Uh, we are on these verses today, not because I was thinking about one of you and wanted to lay this on you so you would feel especially convicted. I'm, we're preaching in verses 6 through 13 because last week we talked about verses 1 through 5. And Lord willing, next week we'll be in verses 14 through 20. But frankly, as I... Uh, as I was sitting there thinking about this passage, I, I have to have to admit I'm I'm nervous. I'm always a little nervous, but I'm a little more nervous today because of what this passage contains. And so, as we look at this, please don't think that I'm preaching at you. Uh, that I picked it out because I knew you were going to be here. That's not my job. Uh, if God will apply this to your heart as He see fits. Uh, but uh, it is uh, Revelation 14, verses 6 through 13. And you might understand what I'm, the way I feel when we get into these verses and you read the words for yourself. So let's read this portion of God's Word today, and uh, may He bless the reading of our Word together. Hear the Word of God. Then I saw another angel flying directly overhead with an eternal gospel to proclaim to those who dwell on earth to every nation and tribe and language and people. And he said with a loud voice, Fear God and give him glory, because the hour of his judgment has come. And worship him who made heaven and earth, the sea and the springs of water. Another angel, a second followed, saying, Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. She who made all nations drink the wine of the passion of her sexual immorality. And another angel a third followed them, saying with a loud voice, If anyone worships the beast and its image and receives a mark on his forehead or on his hand, he will also drink the wine of God's wrath, poured full strength into the cup of his anger, and he will be tormented with fire and sulfur in the presence of the holy angels in the, in the presence of the Lamb. And the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever. And they have no rest, day or night, these worshipers of the beast and its image, and whoever receives the mark of its name. Here is a call for the endurance of the saints, those who keep the commandments of God and their faith in Jesus. And I heard a voice from heaven saying, write this, Blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Blessed indeed, says the Spirit that they may rest from their labors, for their deeds follow them. This is the word of God, the very words of God. May he bless uh, what we've just read and strengthen us to hear his word today. Let me pray for us as we begin. So, Father, as we approach this part of your word that uh, is, uh, frankly, a little grim, I pray that you would strengthen us and give us grace to hear what it has to say. I pray that you'd strengthen me with your spirit to preach it clearly, 
and without hesitation. And we pray, Father, that your word, which uh, Hebrews describes as a double-edged blade, would perform surgery among us where necessary, that it would cut us to the heart, and where necessary, Lord, that your word would comfort and heal us. Uh, We uh, entrust the outcome of today to you, and may you be pleased uh, that your word would not return void. For whatever purpose you intended to accomplish, may it do that very thing today. And Savior, I pray this in your strong and powerful and very precious name. Amen. We come to the final hour in our text today. Frankly speaking, that would be a better title than the one printed in your bulletin, so I have uh, changed my opening slide to what I wanted to read. Uh, You can scratch that out in your bulletin and, and give it this title if you care to. The final hour, the consummation or the conclusion of all things. Um... Verse 7 says uh, toward the middle, Fear God and give him glory because the hour of his judgment has come. And what we're looking at in these verses in front of us today is the final hour, the conclusion of world history. We've been describing the holy war in these middle chapters of Revelation. Chapters 12 and 13 describe our conflict with the dragon. Uh, Chapters 12 and 13 describe how Satan wages war against the followers of the Lamb. But then in chapter 14, which we looked at last Sunday, we witness uh, the saints' victory celebration in heaven. Uh, We witness the great company of the redeemed singing a new song before the Lamb in the throne room of heaven. 14, 1 through 5, leaps forward in time without ever telling us how the holy war turned out. Or how it ended. But in verse 6, John receives a vision that fills in that gap. In fact, the rest of chapter 14 describes this final hour. uh, The consummation of all things. The conclusion of history. And in the remainder of chapter 14, uh, John tells us how believers safely arrive in heaven. That we've already seen in verses 1 through 5. He begins with a description of the final hour in this portion we're looking at today. What happens in the final hour? What happens at the consummation? What happens at the conclusion of all things? And today we'll see that there are four features of the final hour. Uh, four features of the final hour in verses 6 through 13 today. The first is the final call. Uh, Before the end of all things, there is a final call for unbelievers to repent. Uh, Three things that we need to see about this final call. The first thing to see is that it is uh, the final call of the gospel. The gospel message is Uh, proclaimed right up until the end. If you'll notice verse 6, Then I saw another angel flying directly overhead with an eternal gospel or everlasting gospel. Uh, And this indicates that the message this angel is proclaiming is unchanging and eternally valid. This is not a a different kind of gospel as some premillennialists would suggest to you. It is the the one and only gospel 
of Christ and his payment for sin on the cross. The Apostle Paul affirms that there is only one gospel, and that's the one he proclaimed. He says this in Galatians 1.8 where he writes, But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. Uh, Accursed meaning uh, eternally condemned. And Jesus also affirms that this one and only gospel will be proclaimed right up until the end. He says in Matthew 24, and this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. So first of all, what we find is a final call of the gospel, the gospel about Christ and his payment for sin. The second thing we see about this final call is that it's made to unbelievers. This proclamation of the good news is made throughout the whole world, just as Jesus said in Matthew 24. Verse 6 goes on to say, Then I saw another angel flying directly overhead with an eternal gospel to proclaim to those who dwell on earth. As we've noted before in our study, that phrase, those who dwell on earth, is John's way of referring to the world of unbelievers, not those whose citizenship is in heaven, uh, but those who have made the earth their home. And, And John adds a slight twist to the phrase this time. More literally, it says, to those who sit on earth. And that Uh, conveys the idea of their easygoing indifference. Uh, These people are unconcerned about eternal things. Uh, Jesus described this group in Matthew 24. He says, For as, as were the days of Noah, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. For as in those days before the flood they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage until the day when Noah entered the ark and and they were unaware until the flood came and swept them all away, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. The idea is that these people were participating in normal human activities, eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage. This is not excess, it's just the normal stuff of life. And unbelievers will continue to conduct life as usual right up until the very end, God tells us, with no concern for his will or his word. It will be made to all divisions of the human race. The next phrase indicates that. It says, to those who dwell on earth, to every nation and tribe and language and people. This is the unbelieving multitudes of the world we'll hear this final call, the final proclamation of the gospel in the final hour. Unbelievers all over the world. And lastly, the third thing we see about this final call, it is a final call to repentance. This final call urges unbelievers to turn from their indifference toward God. We hear this call to repentance in verse 7. Verse 7 begins like this, And he said with a loud voice, Fear God. That's an urgent Greek tense, and it calls for urgent, uh, an urgent response. It calls for a specific action. 
the angel summons unbelievers to show respect and reverence toward the Lord, something that up until this point they have failed to do, as Romans 3 uh, describes it. There is no fear of God before their eyes. This fear that we're talking about is holy awe, reverence, not fright or terror. This is uh, the utmost respect. Uh, the next phrase in verse 7 conveys the same idea. It goes on to say, Fear God and give him glory, because the hour of his judgment has come. Glory conveys the idea that, that something has weight to it, uh, that something has gravity. And unbelievers have not given God the gravitas that, that he deserves as God. They have not taken him seriously. Revelation 1.21 describes this to us. For though they knew God, they did not glorify him as God or show gratitude. Instead, their thinking became nonsense and their senseless minds were darkened. But this proclamation that we're reading today summons unbelievers to change their minds. That is what the word repent means metanoia, oh, have a change of mind, have a change of disposition towards someone, and this is calling them to have a change of disposition uh, toward the Lord and toward his word, especially since the hour of his judgment is nearly upon them. Finally, this final call summons them to give God what he deserves, and that is their complete devotion and worship. Look at the conclusion of verse 7. It says, uh, And worship him who made heaven and earth, the sea and the springs of water. Worship conveys the idea of, of falling to your knees or falling on your face before someone, prostrating yourself on the ground, laying prone uh, before royalty. And this command would no doubt include acknowledging their sinfulness before God, acknowledging Christ's payment for sin on the cross, as well as total surrender to Christ and his claim as Lord of all. And this command also summons them to recognize Christ as the creator of all things in the universe, which Colossians chapter 1 tells us he is. The third thing we find in this final call is a call to repentance. Unbelievers are summoned to change their mind to give God the gravitas, the gravity he deserves, to acknowledge his word, to acknowledge his claim on their lives as Savior and Lord. Can I remind you that this is part of our mission in the world? to proclaim the good news of Christ and Christ's payment for sin on the cross and, and call those who don't know him to turn from their sin and their disinterest in God to trust in Christ alone for, for forgiveness. Table Talk magazine put it like this, the church has a distinct mission to preach the gospel and to make disciples of all nations. And the suffering and problems we face give us no excuse to stop proclaiming this gospel. So can I ask you, friend, are you one of those who uh, has no fear of God? Are you one of those who doesn't take God or his claims seriously? 
Have you taken him lightly all this time? Right at this moment, if that describes you, he is giving you an opportunity to change your mind. To turn toward him and take his gospel seriously. To take, his, to take Christ's payment on the cross for sin seriously. And he is giving you an opportunity at this moment to surrender your life to him. To bow the knee and surrender to his claim to lordship. Many of you have already taken the knee and surrendered your life to Christ. And to those of you who have, it is our mission to proclaim this message to the world around us. This is why Vacation Bible School is really important. It has eternal value. The word we proclaim to the children, even the songs that we sing, most of them at least, So this is the first feature of the final hour, the final call. Uh, before the end of all things, there is a final call for unbelievers to repent. Well, there's a second feature, of course, that we want to go on and look at this morning, and that's the fallen city. Babylon, the great city opposed to Christ, suffers defeat and ruin. And I want to point out two things about the fallen city. Of Babylon. First is its identity. Uh, verse 8 begins, another angel, a second, followed, saying, Fallen, fallen is Babylon the Great. What exactly is he referring to? Babylon the Great. Well, later in chapter 18, we'll read about Babylon again. And Babylon in chapter 18 is referred to there as the great city. Uh, chapter 18, verse 10 says, Alas, alas, you great city, you mighty city Babylon, for in a single hour your judgment has come. This same phrase, the great city, we saw back in chapter 11. Uh, that great city, which is, uh, let me show you the phrase here. The great city that symbolically is called Sodom and Egypt, where the Lord was crucified. There are three cities referenced in this Verse, the great city is like Sodom, known for its sexual immorality. The great city is like Egypt, known for persecuting God's people. The great city is like Jerusalem, where unbelievers crucify Christ again and again. And so from these references, we can sum up and describe Babylon like this. According to one man, he says, God's enemies live in the great city, Babylon. Not in one particular place, but in the worldwide structure of unbelief and defiance against God. Another man adds this that's helpful. The Bible makes it clear that Babylon is a constant factor in human history. It is a symbol not of just one city, institution, person, or movement, but of severe opposition to God. Babylon is the capital of Antichrist's kingdom, 
just as the heavenly Jerusalem is the capital of God's kingdom. The people reading this for the first time would have certainly thought of Rome. Rome would have been a prime example of Babylon. And in fact, in some places, Babylon does seem to be kind of a code word for the Roman Empire. But Babylon here in verse 8 is, is more than just Rome. It is, it is, as one man says, the symbol of mankind in community opposed to the things of God. It is the world system, if you will, opposed to Christ and his rule. But moving on from its identity, the next thing we see in these verses is its iniquity or the sin for which it is condemned by God. Verse 8 goes on to say, Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. She who made all nations drink the wine of the passion of her sexual immorality. Last Sunday we noted in the Bible sexual immorality often refers uh, not to the necessarily to the act of sexual immorality, but spiritual idolatry or unfaithfulness to the Lord. We see uh, this phrase, sexual immorality, used like this, for example, in the book of Hosea chapter 1, where God's word said to Hosea the prophet, when the Lord first spoke to Hosea, he said this to him, go and marry a promiscuous wife and have children of promiscuity, for the land, Israel, is committing blatant acts of promiscuity by abandoning the Lord. Now, of course, real sexual immorality is certainly a part of the world's allure, but it's just a part of the world's overall attraction. When we see the word sexual immorality, it's often a reference to worshiping false gods or spiritual unfaithfulness to the Lord. The ESV Study Bible defines it like, uh, like this. Babylon, the prostitute, represents society's allure of material prosperity and pleasure, seducing the unwary into adultery against the Lord. And this is why God's Word gives us such direct and solemn warnings about loving the world and loving the things of the world. Uh, one of the clearest is in 1 John chapter 2, where uh, God's Word says this, Do not love the world or the things in the world. Again, this is not planet Earth we're talking about. This is that world system that's opposed to Christ. We're talking about Babylon. We're talking about uh, things that are anti-Christ. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh uh, and the desires of the eyes and the pride of life is not from the Father but is from the world. It's very serious caution. And then James chapter 4 gives us uh, this, you adulterous people. Again, there's that reference to sexual immorality. Do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity or hatred uh, with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. So when, when you and I are are loving the world 
we are actually drinking the wine of Babylon and committing spiritual adultery against the Lord. This is Babylon's iniquity, this allure to uh, lead people away from faithfulness to Christ uh, into adultery with the world and its pleasures. So this is the iniquity of the fallen city. It's a lure into spiritual idolatry. Uh, this is the fallen city. It's identity, it's iniquity. There's a third feature of the final hour that we want to go on to see. We've, uh, we've uh, seen the fallen city. Before that, the final call. Third, uh, we want to go on to see the foaming cup, the third feature of the final hour. Those who worship the beast will drink the cup of God's wrath. And there are three things to take note of in this third feature. The first is that uh, God's wrath is poured out on unbelievers. This foaming cup will be poured out upon those without faith in Jesus Christ. Look in verse 9, please. And another angel, a third, followed him, saying with a loud voice, if anyone worships the beast in its image and receives a mark on his forehead or on his hand. And here right away we might pause and think that this sounds like science fiction or maybe some kind of movie that you saw in a church where you were growing up and uh, some fantastic suggestions have been made about who the beast is and this mark on his forehead or on his hand, a, a microchip or a micro dot embedded under the skin, a tattoo on the forehead. I mean, uh, you've heard all kinds of things. The COVID vaccine. Uh. Several weeks ago, we described the beast from the sea. That was back in chapter 13. We mentioned five characteristics of the beast. Uh, we described its origin, its appearance, its satanic power, its many forms, its worship. And we summed up what the beast was like this, quoting a Bible scholar. He says, the seaborn beast symbolizes the persecuting power of Satan embodied in all the nations and governments of the world throughout history. That's a take on the beast that some of us, frankly, did not grow up hearing uh, this man, and, and I also agree, and this is what we said a few weeks ago, that the beast is a recurring uh, system of persecution against the church, uh, not necessarily any one inv individual. It, it might take the form of one individual right before Christ returns. Maybe in the final hour, one person or one nation will rise up in particular uh, to fulfill this role. Uh, but generally, it's uh, persecuting governments, persecuting nations throughout history. Uh, another man, Derek Thomas, the beast represents political and secular forces that seek, however subtly, to destroy the testimony of Jesus Christ and oppose the building of the kingdom of Christ on earth. It has many shapes, many horns, now taking one form and now another. And then... From the beast, we moved on to describe the mark of the beast that some of you were disappointed with my explanation. Uh, we described the mark of the beast uh, on the head or the hand as a symbol of ownership. Uh, 
not an actual mark or, or stamp on your forehead or your hand, but a reference to how a person thinks or how a person acts. Again, I quoted this gentleman when we talked about this. Receiving the mark of the beast then means that you belong to Satan. Serve him and worship him. The mark is pressed upon the forehead, which symbolizes the mind or philosophy of a person, or on the right hand, symbolizing a person's actions, deeds, trade, and industry. In other words, when people's thinking and actions are controlled by someone who hates Christ, they bear the mark of the beast. And so let me stress again that all of you sitting here this morning bear a mark. And there are only two choices. There are no neutral positions to take. You either bear the mark of Christ and God the Father. You have their mark on your forehead or your right hand. In other words, you think thoughts along the lines of how God thinks. And your actions, uh, what you do with your right hand, conforms to what his word calls you to do. It's either that or the mark of the beast. In other words, you think like the world around us thinks. Or you do, you act with your right hand the way the world around us acts. You bear a mark today, uh, one or the other. Those that worship the beast, our passage tells us, are those who don't know Christ, are unbelievers. Um, it says, uh, and another angel, a third, followed them, saying with a loud voice, if anyone worships the beast in its image and receives a mark on his or her, his forehead or his on, excuse me, or on his hand. This refers to all those who don't know Christ, those who are attached to the world and all it represents, these, it says next in verse 10, will drink the cup. It says, he also, that person, that worldly person, will also drink the wine of God's wrath. Note, note this contrast, if you would glance back to verse 8. Uh, fallen, fallen is Babylon the great, she who made all nations drink the wine of the passion of her sexual immorality. The person drinking that cup will drink this cup in verse 10. He also will drink the wine of God's wrath. The person intoxicated with the things of this world, the, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and the pride of life will also drink the cup of God's righteous anger. This is the foaming cup. It is poured out on unbelievers. But second, it's poured out in undiluted fury. Uh, look at verse 10 again. This is, this is his word, not my word. He also will drink the wine of God's wrath, poured out, poured full strength into the cup of his anger. The Greek culture was in the habit of mixing their wine with water. They would dilute it, um, uh, it would uh, weaken it, but this phrase here, full strength, specifically refers to undiluted wine, wine that has not been diluted or thinned with water. But it's not wine that we're talking about here. This phrase is applied to the undiluted fury 
of God. It's sin. And John uses two words to describe God's anger at sin in this verse. He uses the word anger in your English text. That refers to a settled feeling of indignation, a, a disposition, a constant attitude. And this is God's constant disposition uh, towards sin. It is something, frankly, that believers often forget. But uh, Psalm 711 reminds us God is a righteous judge and a God who feels indignation every day. And then John also uses another word in this verse, and the, the word is wrath. And that refers more to a passionate outburst. God's boiling over fury, and the book of Nahum describes that to us. The Lord is a jealous and avenging God. The Lord is avenging and wrathful. The Lord takes vengeance on his adversaries and keeps wrath for his enemies. Who can stand before his indignation? Who can endure the heat of his anger? His wrath is poured out like fire, and the rocks are broken into pieces by him. This is what those who reject Christ and worship this world will face on the day of Christ's return. This is not just Old Testament truth, as many of us think. I am, after all, reading from the last book of the New Testament. This is Christ's revelation. Those who reject Christ will wor and worship this world will drink the cup of God's wrath uh, in the final hour. Romans chapter 2 describes it like this, but because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. The very same event, the very same pouring out of wrath was described to us previously under the sixth seal. And if, if you would just turn back a page or two to chapter 6, let me remind you that this is not the first time we've encountered this day in the book of Revelation. It keeps coming back over and over for example, it was, it was first revealed to us in the sixth seal, Revelation chapter 6, verse 12. When he opened the sixth seal, I looked, and behold, there was a great earthquake, and the sun became black as sackcloth, the full moon became like blood, and the stars of the sky fell to the earth as the fig tree sheds its winter fruit when shaken by a gale. The sky vanished like a scroll that is being rolled up, and every mountain and island was removed from its place. Then the kings of the earth and the great ones and the generals and the rich and the powerful and everyone slave and free hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains, calling to the mountains and rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of him who is seated on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of their wrath has come and who can stand? And as uncomfortable as I am telling you about this, this is not yet as bad as it gets. Because the next thing we read about this foaming cup is that it leads to unending torment. Uh, it leads to unending torment. Those who drink the cups of wrath will suffer torment for eternity. Look at verse 10 again. Uh, he, will also, he also will drink the, the wine of God's wrath, pour full strength into the cup of his anger, and he, that person who worships the world 
and bears the mark of an unbeliever or bears the mark of the beast, he will be tormented with fire and sulfur in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. Torment in verse 10 refers to torturing pain, suffering. And there are many people without Christ who think that hell is going to be bearable because at least their friends, are, their friends will be there. You've heard that probably. I've heard it many times. But this tells us it will be a place of intolerable suffering. In the Gospels, Jesus describes hell as a place of weeping and gnashing of teeth. The next phrase tells us that this is in part caused by fire and sulfur. Verse 10 says, He will be tormented with fire and sulfur. And Jesus describes hell in the Gospels as a place of unquenchable fire. And the next phrase beyond that tells us that torment is also called by the presence of the Lamb. We often say that hell is not the complete absence of God. Uh, many often say that it is, but it is not. After all, God is present everywhere. Uh, verse 10 tells us that Christ will be present, but he will be present in judgment. And he will be present in wrath to judge sinners. We learned this in our men's Bible study two years back that Christ is there, but he is not there for comfort or consolation. He is there for judgment. And worse, uh, verse 11 tells us that this will go on forever and ever. Verse 11, and the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever. This describes continual unbroken action. Unbelievers are not annihilated. Some believe that God in his mercy will completely obliterate the soul of an unbeliever. But this text does not support that idea. Verse 11 tells us unbelievers will endure conscious suffering throughout eternity. And then finally, the conclusion of verse 11 says they will have no rest. Uh, and they have no rest, day or night, these worshipers of the beast and its image and whoever receives the mark of its name. One man sums it up. The wicked suffer ceaselessly day and night in agonizing torment. Whew, boy, I don't, I don't know if I could think of a worse thing to have to preach on than this. It's awful. It's awful. It is very grim. And this is what the people around us who don't know Christ are going to face. Uh, and this is why they need to hear about Christ. Friend, if you're here today, and again, not to beat a dead horse, if you don't know Christ, this is what awaits you. It is not good. It is, it is horrible. Uh, I, I plead with you to turn to Christ on the cross, trust his payment for your sins, 
and escape the wrath to come. This is the third feature of the final hour, the foaming cup of God's wrath poured out. Well, in a dramatic contrast, I don't know that we could get a more dramatic contrast, and it's good because we need a little, we need a little lift right now, I feel. Uh, in dramatic contrast to what awaits unbelievers is what awaits the faithful saints. Uh, this is the fourth feature of the final day. I want to be sure to point out this, uh, these two verses of what awaits God's people. And this is truly, uh, truly good news. Uh, the faithful saints here, and there are four characteristics in these two verses of the faithful saints. The first is their endurance. Uh, notice uh, verse 12 with me. Uh, faithful believers persevere to the end. It says, here is a call for the endurance of the saints. The word endurance is the Greek word hupomone. And it, in its most literal sense, this word carries the idea of remaining under a heavy load or, or withstanding, bearing up under a great weight. And I have to confess that Friday night when we were taking apart the stage and myself and John Penn were carrying out a huge portion of it, I could not remain under the load. I had to put it down and change my grip, and I think Will took over for me. Because uh, I could not, I confess, remain under the weight. But in a figurative sense, that refers to withstanding hardship or stress. Endurance can refer to the quality of inward fortitude or determination. And that endurance is something that should mark us all. Uh, Jesus himself says in Matthew's Gospel, "...and you will be hated by all for my name's sake." Uh, but the one who endures, here's our word, hupomone, endures to the end, will be saved, who remains under, who endures that stress. And then again in Matthew 24, the same phrase comes up, and many false prophets will arise and lead many astray, and because lawlessness will be increased, the love of many will grow cold, but the one who endures, who bears up under that, who, who remains steadfast and determined and endures, so the end will be saved. And then this final familiar passage from Hebrews 12 that I don't have a slide for says this, Therefore, since we are surrounded by uh, so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance, hupomone, uh, diligence, uh, enduring stress and hardship, the race set before us. This is, what, this is what Charles Spurgeon longed for. And uh, Spurgeon said this, I know of nothing which I would choose to have as a subject of my ambition for life than to be kept faithful to my God till death, still to be a soul winner, still to be a true herald of the cross and testify the name of Jesus to the last hour. It is only such who in the ministry shall be saved. Friend, this is our call to bear up under this, the stress of this world. And by God's gracious spirit that indwells us, he enables us to do this. 
we see their endurance. And, and then we see their obedience next. Faithful believers keep the commands of God in verse 12. Here is a call for the endurance of the saints, those who keep the commandments of God. These uh, are uh, the commandments refer to the objective written revelation of Old and New Testaments. These commands endure throughout all generations. These commands that will not be repealed. As Jesus says, do not think I've come to abolish the law or the prophets. I've not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For, for truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, which is where we are in the book of Revelation, not uh, an iota, which is the Greek letter I, and not a dot, which is a, a reference to a Hebrew vowel pointing, a period, if you will, will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven, but whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the king, kingdom of heaven. And, and note here further, it says that they keep the commandments of God. And that means to guard something, to, to watch over something, to pay close attention. And friends, we're called to pay attention to the scriptures. We, we don't relax ourselves on gender. We don't relax ourselves on sexual immorality. That it's okay to sleep with someone before you're married. God's word calls us not to do that, but to keep and guard and preserve that. That purity uh, before the Lord is part of being holy. That we, that we not be drunk, as Ephesians 5.18 calls us to. That we not be addicted to much wine or any other substance. We don't give because we feel the pressure and, and the bearing up under the load is hard, and so we give a little. We, we're, we're called not to give. You, friend, are called to stand fast. Guard it. So we see their obedience, their endurance, remaining under the load, determination. We see their obedience Guarding the Old and New Testament scriptures, we see next. We see next their faith, as the verse continues, verse twelve again. Those who keep the commandments of God and their faith in Jesus. As you look at this phrase in verse twelve in your copy of the Bible, you might get the idea that that we're called to continue believing in Jesus Christ, and of course. Of course, that is true. That's not exactly what the Greek phrase means. If you'll note in your ESV Bible, there's a footnote after the name of Jesus. And the bottom of the page tells us what the Greek text actually says. It says uh, these people are those who keep the faith of Jesus. The faith of Jesus. The faith refers to the content of our faith. The faith refers to the objective faith of a Christian creed. The faith refers to the doctrinal content of the Christian faith. And yes, I use that awful word, doctrine. 
Some of you hate that word, and that's a shame. Doctrine is things like the sinless perfection of Jesus Christ. Do you want to let go of that? Because you let go of sinless perfection. You might as let go of everything, because there is no forgiveness of sins without the sinless perfection of Jesus Christ. I don't see the big deal about the virgin birth of Jesus. It's a, it's a myth. You let go of that, you let go of the sinless perfection of Christ. And then follows you let, letting go of his substitution for us on the cross as the perfect sacrifice. We can't let this stuff slip. Jude talks about it like this. Beloved, although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. Faithful believers fight for things like the sinlessness of Jesus, that he was truly God and truly man, and, and that the Bible is the very word of God, and it's, it's authoritative. It, it speaks into our lives and has authority over us to tell us what to do, uh, and that salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, and that uh, faithful saints are those who pay attention to these truths and guard them from attack by false teachers. We guard the faith. As Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones put it, we cannot have the benefits of Christianity if we shed its doctrines. There is, a, there is a, some basic skill here, friend, and you are not too young in the faith to learn about it. You're not too young to benefit from a book like Essential Truths of the Christian Faith by R.C. Sproul, where he talks about some of these things, and the chapters are two pages long. Two pages long. The faithful saints fight for the faith until the end. And there's one more thing to see about the faithful saints and that is their rest. Faithful believers are blessed with rest from their labors in eternity. And notice verse 13. And I heard a voice from heaven saying, write this, blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Blessed indeed, says the Spirit, that they may rest from their labors for their deeds follow them. Rest means to cause someone to become physically refreshed as the result of resting from work, to cause to rest, to give rest. Again, there is a strong contrast here with what we've seen previously. If you glance up to verse 11 again, and the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever, and they have no rest day or night. But then verse 12 Blessed indeed, says the Spirit, that they may rest from their labors. Believers, through faith in Jesus Christ and in endurance to the end, find rest in the presence of God. This is perhaps the most complete and final and ultimate fulfillment of Psalm 23.1 uh, that we're familiar with, but I'll put it up here for you anyway. At least I think I will. Jeff, help me out. It won't do anything. 
There it goes. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters, or you could say, translate it, waters of rest. And there is one day where Christ Jesus returns and we're gathered to meet him in the air and enjoy the marriage feast of the Lamb. And we will have rest. And it will be glorious. This is the fourth feature of the saints. Uh, their endurance, their obedience, their faith, and lastly, their rest. So this is the final hour. We are, we are right at the edge. And next week we'll see the return of Christ and the harvest of the earth. But we are right up on the brink at this point, the final hour. And what happens in the final hour? There's four features we looked at today. There's the final call, the proclamation of the gospel. There's the fallen city, the great city of Babylon, that world system against Christ brought down. The foaming cup, the undiluted fury of God will be poured out on unbelievers. And the faithful saints, believers who persevere, will find rest in presence. Rest in the presence of Christ. Let me pray for us as we conclude. You're the author of this word. Heavenly Father, by you, your good spirit, you breathed it out through the Apostle John. And uh, please today cause it to have its intended effect, effect on all those seated here, myself included. Father, draw people to faith in your son Jesus through these words. Lord, alarm us with the warnings given here. Stir us to share the good news about Jesus with those we know are lost. And God, keep us faithful by your good spirit indwelling us. Thank you for the phrase that says we are guarded until that day. Thank you for the Spirit who's the guarantee of our redemption until we receive our inheritance. Savior, keep us faithful. Keep us obedient to your word. Keep us fighting for doctrine. Uh, keep us to the end, Jesus, we ask in your precious name. Amen.